0: It not ah just i can't i can't talk about it without getting pissed off screw that movie
1: Radio Drone. It's not Mother's Day here at Radio Drone, but we will be talking about how MOTHER is relevant. I am Josh Hadley. With me, almost as always, is Peter. Last week he was face down in a toilet because it was his birthday, Gajik.
0: That's right. And also,
1: MOTHER! I was kind of Danzigish. And Cecil's out this week for personal reasons. If you watched his video, you know why. He'll be back next week. Stepping in for him is the person I like to torture with all of my retrospectives. Mike White is our perpetual punching bag here. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. How's it going? I kind of figured you'd have some witty retort, but okay. I I got
2: nothing. (laughs) Nothing yet.
1: Fair enough. Mike's tired. Give him a break. Give
2: me some time to warm
1: up here. If you want to warm up in a different kind of way, you can go to adamandeve.com. It's almost like you set me up for that, Mike. You use the promo code DROME, and you would get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'd get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. All for using the promo code DROME. I almost said what there. DROME at AdamandEve.com. And you can even buy something for Mother! It's the last time I'm going to do that tonight. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the Psycho franchise tonight. A franchise that went on longer than... I remembered three theatrical original movies, a TV movie, a, a TV pilot, a theatrical remake, and then a new current TV series. That's a hell of a franchise for the film that nobody wanted in 1960. Before we get into the history, what do you think of the franchise as a whole? Like When you think of the Psycho franchise, what do you think of?
2: the amount of time it took between the first movie and the second movie, and then that they didn't necessarily just kind of milk this thing, which was, you know, kind of nice. Like, they, they were pretty regular in bringing out 2, 3, and 4, and they've got their TV pilot and their TV show, but it never felt like they were being overly exploitative of that 60 film. So, not until Van Zant got his hooks into it. Then it felt a little exploitative. But otherwise, it was... uh
0: kind of well-respected, which I really appreciate. I think of a, a movie from 1960 that was incredibly ahead of its time, and then sequels that really lived up to it really nicely and added some great things uh, to the legacy. I love uh, 2 through 4, even though 4 is pretty much uh, a flat-out retcon of 2 and 3, but it's still, it's, it's a great... A lineup of movies to watch, and, and they all build up the legacy in a really great way. Anthony Perkins, of course, is is amazing. I love it. Uh, in terms of the, the franchise, one through four, I think is so worth watching and um, pretty unknown uh, to a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people know that uh, Psycho actually had sequels and uh, some pretty goddamn good ones, too.
1: Well, let's go back to the beginning. Actually, before 1960. Robert Bloch wrote his novel, Psycho, in 1959, based on the killings of Plainfield, Wisconsin's Ed Gein. And he, mm-hmm. he was very loosely based on, on Ed Gein. He used some of the mother angles and whatnot. Somehow this, got into the, this book got into the hands of Alfred Hitchcock, who could not have been hotter at this point. And he wanted to make it into a movie. Now you got to remember, this is still in the Hays Code era. We don't even have the MPAA. As soon as Paramount, Hitchcock's studio, saw the book, they said there is no way we are going to make this into a movie. Not happening. Hitchcock would not let it go. So he bought the rights to the book for a measly $10,000, 9500 actually in 1959. dollars. He insisted this will be his next movie, no, no matter what. He kept going to Paramount and they kept turning him down, turning him down, turning him down, until he finally said, okay, look, how about to keep costs down, I'll make it at Universal and you can distribute it. They finally said, fine, whatever. So he made this movie that nobody wanted him to make, and it was a surprise success. The movie was made on only $806,000, and it only had a box office take of $50 million in 1960 money. That is a major blockbuster. So at that point, everyone was kind of going, I don't know why we didn't back this goddamn film. So all of that said, when you watch the movie, I actually think the marketing of the film is part of the problem. of mm. Par- That Paramount and Universal didn't know what they were doing. Because the trailer... As Hitchcock is wont to do, he is the star of the trailer. And when you, I watched the movie just last night, and I had just watched the trailer before it because my VHS had the trailer on first. Mm-hmm. If I had not seen the trailer, I would have fallen for the fact that Marion Cooper is. You're supposed to think she's the main character, and that you're you're not supposed to think this is a slasher movie. You're supposed to think it's a crime thriller, and that's mm-hmm. what Hitchcock is going for making the movie. But the trailer spoils all of that. What do you think of the first film in its 1960 context?
0: I love it. Watching it to this day, I, I obviously watched it again to get caught up for this episode, but I love it. Uh, as I said with uh, how I feel about the franchise, I really feel that the first one is is very much ahead of its time. And the way the characters are written, it uh, it feels weirdly modern. And you can definitely tell in that ni- they... Peter,
1: in 1960, you had an adulterous woman who was yeah. independent of her boss stealing money that yeah. you did not do in a 1960 movie
0: no you didn't and uh, even just for its time it's very like the violence is uh, is quite graphic in it you've got killers stabbing someone in the face um it, it's a very a brutal film very quickly paced and as you said like the, it's a very modern take like you've got a you got a character who's built up to be the main character. Obviously, it's supposed to be a uh, you know a curveball, but she's right off the bat um, very what would be considered flawed. You know, she takes off with her boss's money. She's she's an adulterer. I think um, yeah, it's very modern for 1960, and I think because of that, it, it holds up uh so well. And and of course uh that that's only a small part of, of why uh I, I guess we'll we'll get to the, the other aspects of the film, but uh I love Psycho. I think it's it's just an awesome movie and it, it totally paved the way for what I believe would become the slasher genre. Well I absolutely loved
2: psycho you know this really did push boundaries no time before had they shown a toilet in an american film and the toilet is very prominently displayed in this one and i mm. wish i was joking around but it's actually true that that was a very controversial part
1: I, I know it is, it is sort of sad that they showed a toilet in a movie where a woman gets stabbed in the shower is the most controversial part <laughs>
2: yeah and i i I don't necessarily take umbrage with what you were saying as far as the marketing. I thought that they actually did a very clever job with it, though. I mean, Hitchcock was on our television sets every week here with the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show. And I believe he even used some of the crew and everybody for making Psycho so that they could do it quickly and get it done you know, cheaply, you know, you said it was less than a million dollars mm-hmm. for the budget and that whole idea of him with the uh, his patter and speaking to the audience that way. And then I like that he really pulled the wool over everybody's eyes, trying to make them think this is a crime thriller. He's known for his crime thrillers, you know, North by Northwest. Yeah. What's the previous film to this and Vertigo and all these, you know, the wrong man was right before he's just like, you know, bang, bang, boom, knocking him out every single year. And then the whole idea of, you know, people who will not be admitted late to Psycho. You have to come in at the beginning because after those first 20 minutes, man, the whole movie just completely changes. And it's one of the most clever things that any director can do. Taking the star of the film, you know, we've got um, Janet Lee who is this very famous woman at this particular point in her career and then killing her off in the first 20 minutes and then leaving us with these quote-unquote nothing characters and changing it from this crime thriller into this completely different movie one of the best things that he could have done
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and then also one of the things that m- helped move this movie along is Bernard Herman's amazing oh. score. I mean, yeah. we, we all know that the famous shower scene score, but I mean, just the opening score, the underscore, it has this very off kilter tone to the whole movie that like you're almost inside. You don't even know it's Norman's fractured mind at this time, but you're almost inside Norman's fractured mind. Even the opening credits, all Those the all the letters credits, are yeah. literally fractured. You know, it, it's it's brilliant. I think everything about this movie works the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Audiences clearly responded to it. The funny thing is, in 1960, critics didn't. They thought this was the, the, finally, Hitchcock made a mistake. Hitchcock's worst film to date. Other people said that this is just base. That this film is the lowest Hitchcock could ever sink. It's funny how the audiences loved it, and we love it now, and it's considered a classic. Critics hated it can you see why critics didn't like this at this time in 1960
2: well yeah definitely especially because this was not the master's work you know this was not those very craftily you know created things that he had been doing up until this point at least that's how it seems at first blush and the more you dig into the film the more that you see there are some very very clever things that are going on inside of it i mean just some of the symbolism, the whole uh, the theme of the birds that are happening in here. A few years before he makes the birds, by the way, the use mm-hmm. of the the names. You know, Norman and Marion are almost you know the exact same name. Marion Crane, Crane being a bird. Him with all of his stuffed birds. I mean, there's just so many nice things. Him with his stuffed birds. Him with his stuffed mother. All these. The brilliance of Hitchcock is carrying through into this film. But I think critics were more taken aback by. The violence and the, you know, having the, the rug pulled out from under them. And then, yeah, just thinking that this is a, you know, for lack of a better term, this was one of the first slasher films. And I think that they did not necessarily respond to that the way that I won't say that they should have, but the way that other people did.
0: I, I think it shows that critics then and, and critics now really all really aren't all that different. When you've got a movie that's got you know nudity and violence, you're going to have critics that are shitting on it and saying that there's it's, actually no oh, nudity.
1: No, if you there if, isn't no if, if very If you pay implied. attention, even during the shower scene, you there is no nudity, and you don't ever see the knife actually enter Janet Lee's body. It glances no, you off don't. a couple of times, but your mind says you saw her naked and you saw her stabbed. Yeah.
0: Well, you know what I mean. Like, it's still very, uh, at least for its time, was very provocative. And I think a lot of critics do uh, poo-poo that. They're, you, you, you had uh, Siskel and Ebert doing the same things about the horror movies that would come out, and they would just go off on how wrong and awful and misogynistic, all all that kind of stuff is. And I think the critics were kind of doing the same thing. They're, they're seeing, uh, and especially attacking Alfred Hitchcock, because his prior movies weren't Like as graphic, Um, but it really shows that it's the audience that that speaks so much more about uh, how well the movie did or how bad the movie was, uh, rather than critics that seem to be. It it almost seems like they're told uh, to like things for a certain criteria, and if they're they're too violent, if they're too sexual, then they automatically have to shit all over it and try to convince you as the viewer that what you're seeing is wrong. So the fact that that psycho did well with audiences and didn't do well with critics is a testament to how f-ing awesome it is
2: north by northwest is 1959 psychos 1960 and just comparing the level of graphic uh graphicness i guess is the word for between these two films i just re-watched north by northwest the other day and that we we can't show any real coitus between cary grant and Eva marie saint in here the whole idea of like him pulling her up into this bed but yet it's still a very chaste relationship and then cutting to that kind of freudian train going into a tunnel that (laughs) as this kind of wink at the audience at the end of north by northwest versus marion crane in her bra with this uh, you know marry unmarried man and she's unmarried putting on her bra in the afternoon you know that they just had sex and it's just pretty out there it is not that kind of coy wink at the camera this is very much like hey here we are middle of the afternoon she's putting on your bra you know just what happened so yeah it's kind of that difference as well which i thought was a, a nice thing too and then also with north by northwest and especially in vertigo these lush color films and now 1960 he's going back to black and white theatrically which wasn't necessarily de rigueur at the time. It was kind it's of the a, only way know. this
1: movie would have worked. I don't think oh, I, could, yeah. I could not have seen this working in Technicolor. It would not. Well, have
2: worked. The use of yeah. the
1: blood and everything the, the
2: the famous chocolate syrup going down the, the sink, you know, just it, that definitely worked very well.
1: But then there's also the aspect of, of the performances, not just Hitchcock's direction, but this is one of the first times I think I, I hesitate to call Norman a sympathetic crazy man but he kind of is at least at first this is one of the few times our protagonist or one of the first times our protagonist if you will is crazy is the killer we don't normally follow the killer outside of maybe like a gangster picture or something uh, up to this point and then anthony perkins and he doesn't do this as well in the sequels but you really want to like him you really want to feel sorry for him and yet he's off his nut completely and mm-hmm. that takes a delicate balancing act that I think Anthony Perkins absolutely pulled off. And then you got Martin Balsam and Vera Miles. And the performances are well beyond what, Mike, you said it and I said it earlier, what is essentially the prototype slasher would really require, wouldn't it?
2: Hell yeah. Yeah. John Gavin is Sam Loomis, a little wooden and everything, but I think that's really what his character kind of required. He needed to be that dashing hero and everything. And he's also in this rough situation where he's away from marion crane and he's paired with her sister lila and you just are like okay well there should be romance here but it's too weird that there would be and everything so he kind of is is relegated to just kind of this side role but he's there when when
0: norman needs to be uh knocked out he does it can totally see that norman is the the sympathetic killer and that again is is something that truly makes uh, Psycho so ahead of its time because not only is it graphically violent, not only does it have incredibly provocative visuals like like uh, and a toilet and a toilet you got the toilet you got Marion Crane in her bra uh, you know you've you've got the the shower the shower kill uh, and you've got this character of Norman Bates who is he's very likable he's this is this kind of sh- shy awkward guy who at the same time is this violent killer and it, it of course it continues to make him sympathetic in a way at the end too because you know when they're when they're talking about why he is uh, who he is uh, that the doctors are talking about it they're they're <laughs> talking about this the split personality thing and then you kind of go well wow like he he didn't even know he was doing this like apparently he would he would pass out and then become mother and put on the clothes and start killing and then
1: Technically though then wouldn't that say Norman Bates never killed anybody? It was all way. mother.
0: Well I mean there's even that that famous scene where you know after Marion Crane is killed and mother goes back up to the house and then you've got that great shot of the house and Norman going "Mother, mother blood" and it's so he doesn't even know he's he wakes up from that from the mother coma and then all of a sudden you know there's the bloody knife and mother's got blood all over her and and he doesn't know what to think. And, and the rest of the, the movies play into that. But it does it so brilliantly in, in the first movie because by the end of it, it, it completely comes full circle. And you know that, that Norman, in a way, just because of of his childhood and, and how weirdly incestuous it was and and the jealousy that he had and the jealousy that his mother had, it, this was a guy who was clearly very much uh, created, conditioned uh, to become this and snapped and really is two people, it really is Norman Bates and norma Bates in in one one body working with with that the one fractured mind of uh, of Norman Bates and that really does make him this this weirdly uh sympathetic uh, a character and and again that's that's why psycho is so brilliantly ahead of its time like he really he didn't have that kind of stuff in the sixties and it is really quite quite uh incredible
1: I agree. And that's why I think Psycho hit such a nerve with audiences. I mean, an 80 million take in 1960 is a huge nerve you hit with audiences. Even before the sequel in 1983, you had this parodied on everything from Saturday Night Live to to Steve Allen. Everybody was doing Psycho jokes. This film, in a weird way, it didn't do much for Janet Lee's career or Alfred Hitchcock's. But it made mm. Anthony Perkins a bankable name all of a sudden. He wasn't yeah. before this. So then we, we, we go 22 years later. It doesn't actually come out till 83, but it made in 82. 22 years later, Psycho 2 is made. Now, before that, Robert Block wrote a sequel novel in 1982 called Psycho 2. These two things are not to be confused because Robert Block wasn't exactly happy with. I mean, obviously, you can't deny what Alfred Hitchcock did to his book but he didn't exactly like the way Hollywood treated it. So Mm. his Psycho 2 novel was an indictment of the growing slasher trend. It had Universal Pictures making a movie out of the events of the first film and then Norman escaping from the institution and starting to kill people on the set of the movie Psycho. (laughs) Universal hated this. They specifically told Tom Holland, You will not use anything from the book. You won't. If we see anything from the book, you're fired. So (laughs) when he wrote Psycho 2, it's a completely original script. I just want to Mm -hmm. point that out, that the book and the movie have almost nothing to do with one another. Universal decided to move ahead with Psycho 2. Originally, it was going to be a uh, made-for-TV movie, but then they, no, 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 no. And originally, Anthony Perkins wanted way too much money to return as Norman Bates. So seriously, they actually looked at Christopher Walken to play Norman Bates. That didn't work. Anthony Perkins took the role. Richard Franklin, coming off of the hit Aussie film Road Games, came in as as director. Now, he wanted, which I think would have been brilliant, in the role that went to Meg Tilly, he wanted, he wanted Jamie Lee Curtis to play that role, which I think would be absolutely brilliant in-joke casting. But yeah. then Psycho 2 comes out. And it's a fantastic film. I know I'm about to commit film snob heresy. I think it's better than Psycho. I think Psycho 2 is the best film in the franchise. It plays with your expectations of it. Fantastic cast. Beautifully directed. Beautiful script. The twist at the end is that Norman doesn't kill anybody. It's all Vera Miles trying to frame Norman. Well, technically. She's trying to frame Norman and then... Emma Spool is protecting Norman, his real mother, who is the sister of Norma Bates, who is not his real mother. So she wants to reconnect with Norman after he gets let out of the hospital. I think Psycho 2 is the best film in the franchise. Am I an idiot?
2: I don't think you're an idiot. I disagree with you. I just like the first Psycho so much, and I've seen it so many times. Psycho 2 still definitely holds up. I think that it is a great film, very well crafted. I really like the performances in it. I mean... Freaking Dennis Franz and Robert Loggia. You really can't yeah. get better than Dennis that. Dennis
1: Franz is such a sleazebag in this. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs>
2: the role he was born to play. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just not the one that I go back to time and time again. But I will definitely, I can definitely see where you're coming from with this because it is very well crafted. And I thought that they did a
0: fantastic job with it. I just need to quote, uh, Mr. Toomey. Uh, <laughs> At least my customers have a good time. What do yours do, Norman? They get dead, you loony. He's <laughs> fucking fantastic. He's so good. I love Psycho 2. Uh, as uh, as I was saying before, it, it it continues after so many years, after 20 years, it, it continues the first film in, in such a clever way. It's as, a true uh, as sequel. Josh. It oh, is, yeah. and it's, it, I love that it goes in a different direction. You could easily have it just picking up exactly where the original left off with Norman... Immediately being crazy again, uh, killing people as mother again, but no, it goes a different direction. It does play with your expectations. It it make it brings up this idea that what if it's not Norman killing anybody at all? Who is uh, who's killing who in, in these uh, in these situations? I have a I have a, I actually have a bit of a bone to pick with what you said uh, with it with none of them being Norman. I actually believe that Norman at least killed Mister Toomey, and here's my reason for that. The only death in the film that is found, and and it is Mr. Toomey is found using Norman's M.O. from the first film. The car is drug out from the swamp. All of the other murders in the film are randomly placed about the house as if somebody else was doing it. I believe that out of some form of retribution for the Mary character, that's uh, that's living with Norman in the film because Mr. Toomey, like, sexually harassed her, I believe that that is the only one actually done by Norman, and uh, the rest of them are Mrs. Spool. But, but that's just, that's my theory. But I, I think whether it's uh, Norman not killing anybody or Norman killing one people and then everybody else, just the way that the movie ends in this weirdly dark and grim way where you've got Mary, uh, she's caught, dressed as Norma Bates, uh, she gets shot. Norman gets off scot free, and then it just ends with it going actually full circle in a way. He he kills Mrs. Spool. He takes her her body and puts her up, you know, up by the window just like uh, his his mom was before. Because now he's got real mother again, and he can he can continue on uh, the way he did back in the '60s.
2: There's so many nice echoes in this film too. I mean, if there's one clunky thing about Psycho, it's that Sam Simon Oakland speech at the end where he's explaining everything. You know, it's a little ham-fisted for me, and I like how they have that echo in Psycho too, with the sheriff explaining everything almost in the exact same tone and all that kind of stuff. Just so nice. And then you know, Mary Loomis using the name Marie Samuels, which was the name that you know um, Marion Crane wrote down in the registry and all this. One of the things I really liked about Perkins' performance is he's constantly getting these phone calls, which are allegedly from his mother. And I always love that he answers the phone with one ear and then he places the phone on the other ear. And that's when he starts to hear from mother. And it's just yeah. this nice, subtle thing that he's doing, but it's just like, ah, oh, that's so great. Yeah.
1: Wow. I also like the fact that he is, you get the impression in Psycho 2 that. If people would have just left him alone, if Dennis Franz and some of the assholes at the diner and, you know, obviously Vera Miles and Meg Tilly had just left him alone, he would have been fine. Yeah. kind of got the impression they made him kill again. And mm-hmm. you don't normally which is what get makes that. that
0: yeah, which is what makes that ending just so, so grim and, and quite dark that... Uh, Norman, he was completely almost cured, and then... He was still creepy.
1: I mean, he was still he was still creepy. all weird and twitchy, but...
0: Well, yeah, but he almost... Everything was almost fine, and then, tragically, it, it all completely came back full circle, which is, uh... It, it's, it's really almost quite sad, because... And, and again, it makes him this tragically sympathetic character. It keeps going on that path.
1: Well, Psycho 2 had some production problems behind the scenes. Could either of you tell that Anthony Perkins absolutely hated Meg Tilly in this movie? I mean, not their characters, but the actor. Can you tell that he hated her in this?
2: I wasn't necessarily able to tell that much either. There was like one or two times where it felt like he was a little disgusted with her. But I I really wasn't seeing that, even though I, I knew going in that there were these production problems. But it seems like, for me anyway, he was kind of rising above that. Well, because mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't know who he wanted for the role, but he was against Meg Tilly from the beginning, and Tom Holland says two weeks into shooting that he tried to specifically get her fired. He went to the head of the studio and said, he went over Richard Franklin's head and said, this just isn't working. She's just not working. We've got to replace her. We have to. So mm. to me, that proves kind of, that's kind of a dick move to not to not even go to the director about it. I didn't see it either. I actually thought that helped their relationship because their relationship is supposed to be this kind of awkward it's kind of ha- supposed to have this awkward level to it yeah i actually think that might have helped the performances in a weird way that he didn't like her
0: mm-hmm. yeah because uh, there was this weird sort of I-, I think what they were trying to do was they were supposed to be sort of mirror images of, of one another They're, they both had because because even mary's character uh you know lila who was going by loomis now because she she got together with her sister's boyfriend she almost has this this weird possessive Norma Bates vibe uh, about her. Obviously not. Oh yeah. Well, actually, actually, yeah, maybe. Yeah, her mom as,
1: absolutely was controlling her, but yeah, not, not as psychotically.
0: Not quite. Yeah, not quite as bad, but definitely manipulative in a in a very bad and damaging sort of way. And to well, of course, to make your your daughter dress up as uh, this guy's dead mother to to trick him. That's that's pretty. That's pretty. F- up um mm-hmm. so so you could see these parallels uh between her and norman so so yeah i agree that the the awkwardness really adds to it because in in true essence norman bates is a very awkward and, and shy and kind of like a very reserved character so, so to have them them both interacting kind of awkwardly It works really well. I I really I couldn't tell that they hated each other. I just I just saw very good performances like I thought both of them delivered really well and they both worked really well off of each other, even if they or I guess even if Anthony Perkins hated her backstage. I don't know if they hated each other, but but yeah, I I can't tell.
1: Well, now this movie was a hit with both critics and and at the box office. Made on a $5 million budget, box office of $34.7 million, so $35 million. This was a big hit, and it got tons of positive praise. As, you got to remember, this is the beginning of the slasher cycle, where you've got Halloween 2 just coming out, Friday the 13th, 2 and 3 are coming out. You've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which didn't happen at this time, but they were trying to make one. You had all the slasher sequels, and a lot of the critics said, this is how you do a horror movie sequel. So it got a (laughs) lot of praise for being good. And I think people were Mm. surprised at how good this movie is. Do you see Psycho 2's legacy of being, quote, surprisingly good as something, something inherent to 1983? Or is that just people did not want a sequel to a Hitchcock movie?
2: It seemed to really just treat the material with respect, which I liked. I mean, we didn't talk about the opening of the film, which could really be seen as just a, either an FU to Hitchcock, which is reusing the entire shower scene from, you know, from Hitchcock's from Psycho. Or it could be seen as let's get this out of the way, which is kind of the way I took it a little bit more. As I far took as it the
1: like, same way, yeah. Yeah. We
2: know the most famous scene in this movie. Let's just put it right here, and then there might be some shower stuff later on, but really we kind of moved on from this, which I thought was fantastic. I I don't know if it was necessarily inherent to 1983, I just think that it was a, a sequel... You know, nobody should have wanted to see a Psycho Two. Just the idea of a Psycho Two is so wrong. You know, going twenty three years without this movie, why is this necessary? This is just you know pissing on the past kind of thing. And then to have this be a really good movie, what a nice surprise!
1: But then this film being a hit, you knew there was going to be a Psycho Three at some point. We didn't we didn't get that till 1986, but they'd started work on it right after that with a couple of different ideas that didn't pan out. Now, Psycho 3 was made on a much larger budget of almost $10 million and this one only made 14.4, so it was considered a flop. Psycho mm. 3 though this time, Perkins said the only way he would come back is if he got to direct it. Anthony Perkins is directing this one. And I think Psycho 3 is The best directed of all the sequels, because he really is trying to make this almost like Hitchcock would have made it. He's got this one brilliant scene transition where he's closing a door in in the house and then he steps out into another building. And then there's another scene transition where he closes a door and there's the shaft of light coming through the bottom crack, which turns into the reflection of a knife blade. It's so yeah. seamless. It's so Hitchcock, which unfortunately a lot of people said, oh, Anthony Perkins is just trying to ape Hitchcock. I didn't see it as that. I saw Perkins trying to make a psycho film that would be worthy of Hitchcock, not trying to ape it. But this time, yeah. this goes... Plot-wise, goes directly off of the ending of two. So Mrs. Spool is his mo- is his real mother, who he's now is now missing because she was working at the diner with him. A sleazy reporter is now following the missing spool and trying to find out about Norman Bates and the events of the second film. At the same time that Jeff Fahey, who is almost as sleazy as Dennis Franz was in the last film, <laughs> as Dwayne Duke shows up as a temporary worker at the Bates Motel. My, oh my God, he is such a sleazeball. And this time, th- th- this time there's no, is Norman the killer? Norman is the killer this time. But originally yeah. the original script actually had Duke as the killer and not framing Norman but working alongside Norman. The studio thought that was a little too similar to Psycho 2, so they're like, "No, we won't make Duke an innocent, but he's also not the killer."
0: You could have been go- you could have been coming instead of going.
1: Jeff Fahey's
0: sleaziness is amazing. And what what's with that scene where he's playing around with the lamps?
1: Duke is just as crazy as Norman. Really? It just
0: uh, this just uh, in um in the way that Norman is kind of has got the the psychosis Duke is of the same level with just strange sexual creepiness like I I really tried to wrap my head around that the, the scene where he's with the chick in the hotel room and he's playing around with the lamps I don't know that's a whole other story psycho 3 is just as good in my opinion as psycho 2 I was actually trying to narrow down which one I liked more and I've decided that they just work perfectly almost as one story the way psycho 3 ends whatever i'll just talk about it because we're we're talking about the movie anyway but just the way it ends i feel is a is a perfect well-rounded capping of the story where you've got the first one ending with norman bates being hauled off to the to the psych ward to the to the institution and then the second one ends norman uh gets off scot-free uh you know the 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 kills are looked at as uh, somebody else had done them So He's completely innocent, but of course it ends with him with a the new corpse of his real mother, and so it continues from there. And then with the end of this one, everybody knows that it really was Norman this time. He really killed everybody, but before he's hauled off to the to the institution, he finally snaps and he finally actually rebels against mother at the end of this one. He stabs the out of uh, Mrs. out of Mrs. Spool's corpse and just oh, it, he, he, it shows... there's
1: also that one line. I'm gonna get you for this, Mother. Yeah. When, when Mother kills his girlfriend.
0: Exactly. Uh, the um, which is a great little subplot too. You've got uh, the the nun uh, who tries to kill herself and ends up killing another nun, and then she ends up at the at the at the uh, Bates Motel as well. And they develop again this uh, this weird, awkward, but also weirdly sweet sort of relationship because she actually does look a bit like uh like the the character in the first film that he oh, that he stabs and her initials in the shower. are MC. Yeah. So she so she's definitely meant to be this nod to Marion Crane which I thought was really well done and then she dies in a way that's uh not her death her death isn't like Marion Crane's but her death is like the detectives from the first movie where she falls down the stairs. Uh, and then there, Norman finally he snaps against Mother. He's sick of of being controlled and, and manipulated by this by this psychosis, by this lingering presence of this of this thing that's controlling him. He stabs the shit out of Mother's corpse, and he's hauled off back to the institution. But in, in this time, when he's being hauled away, you, you get a sense that Norman finally feels like he's free. He's being arrested. He's being hauled off to the to the loony bin, but. You you feel like he's finally free to, to for his mind his mind is clear. He isn't being controlled anymore. He doesn't feel upset about being hauled away or anything. He's not he does he's not a psycho anymore. And he's uh he's okay with it because he's finally stood up for himself against Mother. And I think that's that's really a great way to to cap off the the trilogy. It really makes one through three just like a perfect series of films. I, I really love the way two and three handled it and just the way that it you've got two at the little midpoint where it's like well wait how how does how does norman get away with that and then the third one it ends in this way that really makes sense and also really respects the legacy of the character
2: I really liked it. I mean, I like that we have kind of the religious imagery. I mean, that whole the movie opening with Diana Scarwood like yelling, you know, there is no God and all that. And that nice kind of uh, to me, I saw it as like a vertigo kind of opening with her and the church t- or the bell tower. I, I saw and,
1: that there, there's no way you can avoid that imagery with with the Psycho franchise and Hitchcock good, involved, good. Mike.
2: Good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. So that was a really nice <laughs> touch. And then like the scene with the ice machine and all that. I mean, yeah, I remembered that so vividly from the first time when I saw this on VHS in 1987 or whenever it came out all these years later. And it's just which is what? Almost what 30 years later, something. Yeah,
1: yeah we're almost 30 years on for Psycho 3.
2: So, yeah, amazing that I can remember that that well and just that tension and everything that was happening in that scene so yeah just amazing stuff this is better than it has any right to be
1: unfortunately universal didn't agree and neither did audiences nor critics the critics the critics looked at psycho 3 as being just a generic slasher movie as (laughs) david kerr of the chicago reader wrote Perkins tries to imitate Hitchcock's visual style, but most of the film is made without concern for style of any kind unless it's the bludgeoning non-style of a Friday the 13th film. Variety said, The film is dependent almost entirely on self-referential incidents and attitudes for its effect, and it eventually becomes wearying. The the critics, I mean, Roger Ebert surprisingly gave Psycho 3 three out of four stars. Quote, any movie called Psycho 3 is going to be compared to the Hitchcock original. But Perkins is not an imitator. He has his own agenda. He has lived with Norman Bates all these years, and he has some ideas about him. And although the movie doesn't apologize for Norman, it does pity him. For the first time, I was able to see the true horror in the Psycho movies isn't what Norman does, but the fact that he is compelled to do it. Unquote. Yeah. Roger Ebert got it. Mm
0: -hmm. But a lot
1: of the critics just saw this as, oh, this is like the Friday the 13th version of the Psycho movies. And so it failed hard at the box office, which meant there was not going to be another one.
0: That really annoys me that people were forgiving of all the self-referential stuff in 2, because that one had a lot of callbacks to the original. You You had a shower scene that was basically just and like an expletive 1980s version of the Marion Crane shower scene. There were lots of quotes from the first one. So I, I don't get why they can completely shit on Psycho 3, yet love Psycho 2 for a lot of the same reasons. I really can't stand that. It's not surprising
2: to me because we are so many years on into the slasher cycle and everything. I'm surprised that Ebert gave it such a positive review because I remember Siskel and Ebert gave it I think it was a marginal thumbs down, but it was definitely a thumbs down, you know, years prior on at the movies or Siskel-Lieb or whatever it was. And I can see these two kind of going hand in hand. You know, I would think that both of them would get thumbs up. So, But I was pleasantly surprised to hear that he was positive about Psycho 3. Yeah, like you said, he seemed to get it. And I can only imagine that people are... I don't know, just overly sensitive at this point and just kind of tired of the whole thing. What what number Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th were we on at this point?
1: Friday the 13th mm. would have been to part seven. Halloween Oof. would have only been part three because four didn't come out till 88. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street would have been on part three. So, yeah, I think people were just kind of sequel out and they were kind of thinking, we don't need another Norman Bates movie, even though it's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. Well, so... Inevitably, what happens when a horror franchise starts to go down a little bit, it moves to TV. So they tried a Norman Bates TV series. They wanted the Bates Motel TV series because we had a Friday the 13th TV series at this point. We had a Freddy's Nightmares TV series. Well, let's get Norman in there too. But Anthony Perkins would have nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever to the point where he actively campaigned against the Bates Motel TV pilot. Hmm. But so this time they had... The, Norm- the Bates Motel 1987 TV pilot starred Bud Court, Laurie Petty, and Moses Gunn. And also it tells you a really nice snapshot of 87 when Jason Bateman is a special guest appearance by credit so this time they said okay two and three didn't happen this is a sequel directly to the first film norman dies in the institution and leaves the bates motel to bud court his roommate and so bud court has to reopen it along with laurie petty who's wearing a chicken suit and moses Gunn as his advisor and people are against it and they made the worst critical move you could do the supernatural the bates motel Mm. is haunted by the ghosts of norman's victims Oh, good lord. Oh this one is straight up, it is supernatural, and it also has a Scooby Doo ending. <laughs> Literally, what? throughout the whole thing, Bud Court is seeing, for some reason, Georgia Bates. I don't know if it was a legal reason, but she's not Norma Bates anymore. Georgia Bates haunting him and it turns out it's literally an evil real estate developer trying to scare them off so he can develop the land for 120 million dollars
0: oh my god
1: and he literally gets unmasked by laurie petty who tape records him saying of what he's doing it's it got a goddamn scooby-doo ending and ghosts you can huh. see why this did not work in 87 neither of mm-hmm. you have seen this one right
0: no, no but i didn't uh wasn't able to find a copy
1: This was a big mistake. So still staying with TV, in 1990, they said, let's have a Psycho 4. This time it's a Showtime original movie. So it's a Showtime original film. Anthony Perkins wanted to come back and direct. Universal said no. So the directing job went to Mick Garris. And this is a big issue with parts of the movie that Anthony wanted to direct it. He was so bitter about not being able to direct it. He literally second-guessed, according to Mick Garris, every single decision in the movie that he was going to be openly hostile to whoever directed this movie because he wanted to direct it. So Mick Garris said, even though this was his first real feature, it was the worst production he's ever been on because Anthony Perkins was a complete asshole to him throughout the entire (laughs) film. He said openly and publicly challenging him on every single decision from camera placement to lighting to motivations Anthony Perkins at this time was dying of AIDS, so he wouldn't succumb until 1992, but so they needed a way to have Anthony Perkins in this movie without having Anthony Perkins be the star. So this is a half of a sequel, half of a prequel. So half of it is Henry Thomas and Olivia, Olivia Hussey as Norma Bates in the 1950s, and half of it is in 1990. Norman Bates calling a radio talk show talking about what he did so really Norman only has to walk around his own living room for a while probably the biggest dick move comes with they got Joseph Stefano to come back to script this one he hated the idea of Norman not being Norman's mom and he hated the Mrs. Spool idea so he specifically said this film does not take into account two and three this is a sequel to Hitchcock's original and that's it all of that said I thought Psycho 4 was surprisingly good. Really well directed for a TV movie. The performances are fantastic. Olivia Hussey is scary freaking hot as Norma Bates, even when she's crazy. Henry Thomas <laughs> is a great young young Norman Bates. And yeah. Anthony Perkins does a great job of balancing his sanity on the outside with kind of being remorseful of what he did and kind of yeah. embracing it.
2: You know, just the way that you described it now and the way that you described it when we talked about doing this episode. The whole idea of Norman Bates just walking around in his house and talking on the telephone and this being the sequel and a prequel at the same time, it just sounds so terrible when you say it that way. And I'm not accusing you because I'm not accusing you of anything because that is what this movie is. It sounds awful. It just, if you wrote that down on paper, I would say there's no way. But yes, to your <laughs> point, it works. It works 100%. It, it is great having Norman Bates as this storyteller. He's in control of the narrative through so much of this, even though CCH Pounder and the people at this radio station are basically trying to control him a little and, bit. And John Landis as the station
1: director. What the yes. hell is with that?
2: I was so (laughs) nice to see him there. And yeah, it was great. He's in control of the story. You're right. Henry Thomas is fantastic. Olivia Hussey is just smoking, which is just so wrong. But at, at the same time, it's Norman's impressions of things. And that's maybe the way that he saw his mother, which would really explain a lot of things. So I thought that they did a fantastic job of this one. And yeah, hats off to Henry Thomas in a big way for this one, too. because he really kind of captures some of those mannerisms of Perkins and really did a nice job.
1: With the mannerisms, though, he didn't make it an imitation. Right. Which is what a true actor does when he's playing a younger version of a character. You really felt this was Norman Bates, but not a caricature of Norman Bates, you know?
2: Yeah, Yeah, this was not a Vince Vaughn interpretation.
1: We'll get to that.
0: (laughs) I think Psycho 4 is the... The, the plot of Silent Night, Deadly Night Two executed properly. It's that same sort of thing where you've got this, you know, a serial killer being uh, interviewed about his past, and it's it's like a yeah. prequel slash sequel kind of thing. And and yeah, on paper, the idea of Norman Bates kind of uh, you know neandering around his, his house and talking on a phone does sound a bit lame. But the way it's shot, the way it's performed, just everything, the way it looks. It's it's directed and shot in a, in a very moody, stylish way. Uh, the lighting is is very moody looking. The the lighting in the radio station is done very well. Uh, the, the prequel scenes, uh, young young Norman Bates and young Norma Bates are so good and really capture perfectly uh, the the vibe of of what you would be expecting Norman's childhood uh, to, to be like and Norman as a kid to be like. Uh, he definitely had Henry Thomas definitely had a vibe of a young Anthony Perkins. They, they both have that same sort of like tall, lanky sort of uh, appeal to them. And and as you said,
1: the way I put it was a twitchy vulnerability.
0: Yeah, they, they both really, really had that. And Henry Thomas had his own sort of version of that because obviously it's, this is younger Norman. This is not older Norman. So it would need to be different. Being different makes sense. He's this, uh, you know, twitchy, vulnerable uh, teenager and he plays it so, so well. And, and again, it's the whole sympathy for Norman Bates really continues because what you see, you're really seeing what Norman went through in his childhood. And oh, does that suck? Um, the you shit can that absolutely his mom,
1: see how what she yeah, does messes him up.
0: Absolutely. Like you, you've got scenes where they're like roughhousing and kind of kind of play fighting and tickling each other. And then, of course, you know, Norman, this uh, this maturing young adult happens to get an erection. And his mother, who was being very flirty with him to begin with, gets just completely pissed off at him for for even thinking of of, of being attracted to her and, and getting a boner. So she dresses him up in a dress, uh, smears his face with makeup, shoves him in a closet with a pitcher, and says and says you you go and you you pee with that because that's that's all you're gonna use that little thing for. That's just for peeing. And she locks him up in the closet for for God knows how long and and she just snaps at him for no reason she starts you know, hitting him over the head with a newspaper and when when he asks why what do I do she says nothing i needed somebody to hit like this is you can really see that that norman wasn't just genetically going to be a psycho he really was raised by somebody who already had the tendencies of, of just a fucking lunatic you can really see where this came from and and while i hate that two and three are pretty much retcon and the whole Mrs. Spool thing is gone. I still think that you can still watch it chronologically with one, two, and three. It's still in a weird way kind of still works as a as a sequel. That's it, it just it's a testament to how goddamn good one through four of the psycho movies are. And and I don't know if it was a writing mistake, but during the interview when when Norman is is talking about his past. He mentions that the the last time he killed was four years prior, which is the time when Psycho 3 came out in 1986. So I think they maybe inadvertently, whether it was a slip from uh, from Anthony Perkins that wasn't uh, a retake, they just kind of went with it. So I think they accidentally tied the other movies to it, even though there was no mention of, of Mrs. Spool. So even just because of that line, whether on purpose or accidental, still makes... Psycho 4 watchable with 3
1: 2 and 1. And Psycho 4 also deals with the whole idea of you said whether he was, you know, going to be genetically a psychopath or not. Norman is now married and his wife is pregnant and he is planning on killing his pregnant wife because he cannot allow his spawn and his seed to enter the world because of his psychosis. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very powerful message for 1990. For 1990, that's a creepy place to go. My only (laughs) real problem with the movie is the very end. He just (laughs) tried to kill his wife. He had all this drama inside the old house, which burns down, and he's finally free of mother. He literally tried to stab her not that long ago and kill their baby. And then they're just hugging outside the fire truck like nothing happened. I was like, all right, that last (laughs) shot's bullshit.
0: (laughs) <laughs> it, it is and it isn't because you've got to take into account here. This woman that's uh, married Norman Bates and is having a baby with him was his, nur- his nurse at the institution. So I think she kind of knew what she was getting into. It was almost like this weird Joker and Harley Quinn relationship. So I, I think... Given the context of her character, I I was able to buy that that she was able to forgive him and, and hug him because she she knew since she uh, since she fell in love with him what she was getting into.
2: Um, I it felt a little tacked on, it, uh, but it didn't necessarily seem like it wasn't in keeping with the rest of the film. I don't know if that necessarily makes sense that much, but I didn't mind it. But I can see where you're coming from with it, and I know that that's kind of a non-answer. I don't know. It was what it was. And I wasn't really like, you know, oh, I'm appalled at this. It just uh, it just felt a little cheesy.
1: My other only real complaint, and it's not really a complaint about Psycho 4, is Olivia Hussey not being able to maintain her American accent throughout the whole movie. There are some scenes where her British accent is sneaking in pretty thick. And it's like, you guys know Norma didn't have a British accent in any of the other movies, right? (laughs) So I was like, Olivia needed to control that a little bit more. But that's my only real complaint is some scenes, her British accent really started to slip back in and they didn't retake those for some reason.
2: uh, Norma Bates has a very interesting way of speaking. And I thought that she captured that a lot of times. And it was interesting because it seems like is kind of slipping into the British stuff as much as she's slipping into more of the hardcore Norma voice. And then seeing some of the scenes with Henry Thomas where it seems to be her voice dubbed in, I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. So it to me, it all kind of worked together that there were these kind of differences in the voices. And again, it's all kind of, you know. For me, it was more perception kind of stuff as far as who's telling the story and what they're perceiving at the time.
1: Which is a fair way to look at it. So this movie, being a TV movie, obviously we don't know how much money it made, but it was critically destroyed. The critics said this was the definition of an unnecessary film. They didn't like it. Nowadays, it's been reappraised and people have looked at, at Psycho 4, the beginning, in a much more favorable light than they did in 1990. And then... For some reason in 1998, Gus Van Sant got these stupid as hell idea, let's remake Psycho as a his word shot for shot remake which it's not, a no. shot for shot remake and it is horrendous. I mm-hmm. this is the only one of these I did not rewatch for this retrospective because I saw it in 98, and I hated it and I'm not yep. watching this thing again. The entire all the casting is so wrong. I I don't Okay, Vince Vaughn is no Anthony Perkins. He is not (laughs) Norman Bates, not in any way. Anne Heche can't hold a candle to Janet Leigh. William H. Macy is a fantastic actor. He's not going to out-cool Martin Balsam. Robert Forster, Mm -hmm. I love. Simon Oakland kicks his ass in this role and so forth. Everything about this movie was was ill-conceived. I hated it. Hated, hated Hated. This is one of my most hated remakes ever.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can I say that I even hated the release date for this film? This was one of the dumbest things that they could have done. The opening of Psycho famously opens with the date and the time, you know, December 11th at this particular time. Here they open this new Psycho on December the 4th, which was a Friday back in 1998, what's the next Friday then? December 11th. They could have opened this on the day that Psycho is set, which would have been such a nice meta thing that they could have done, but no, they had to open it a week earlier and from there on, from before the movie even started, it was just a bad thing and yeah, Vince Vaughn <laughs> playing Norman Bates as just, you know, Norman and obviously Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins, famously gay actor, Cy- is sex psychosexual, tormented, has all these issues going on. Vince Vaughn plays Norman so fucking swishy that it's not even <laughs> funny.
1: and that's oh, that he comes like a Fanz- Night live parody oh,
2: it's like and it's that whole Gus van sant is this like kind of self-hating gay man, which I don't understand in movies like, Elephant where he's just like, oh, well, let's make the killers gay. And it's like, why would you do that? He's also
1: way too big. (laughs) Oh, that was the thing about Anthony Perkins is he was lanky and kind of weird. Vince Vaughn is way too big.
2: Well, in the thing that you said about this being a shopper shot remake that always killed me because as I'm watching, I'm just like, no, these are not the same (laughs) shots. They have those like weird little inserts that look like they are re- rejects from a Rob Zombie video that are kind of showing up here and there and I'm like And they no. actually
1: have Norman jerking off. Oh god, it is yeah. just yeah, you
2: can and you can just hear that, you know, going on right there and I'm just like, "No, stop it. You should not be doing this." <laughs> so many wrong things. There there was a really nice Video that Steven Soderbergh put together on his website, where he compared the two versions of Psycho. And one nice thing about Psycho, the film, is that it is very much a uh, shot reverse shot when it is, you know, when it was done. And then Van Sant picks that same thing up, so you can almost have a character from the original having a conversation with the person from. The remake and vice versa and it is just he does some interesting things sometimes he even overlays the shots to show some of the differences there like the whole idea of the camera spinning on the eye you know after the the blood's going down the drain and everything so it's nice that he is able to compare these things and it's just you know i mean soderbergh's and editor by trade first and foremost. So there's some great things that he's doing with the editing of this. That to me is the only interesting thing or only good thing that has ever come out of this because it is wrong all the way down the line. Oh, it's just terrible and just yet another misstep in Van Zant's career for me. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that even Cowgirls
0: Get the Blues was just 5 years before this. That movie is a fucking joke and uh <laughs> I, I don't really know what else I could add to it uh, to go along with. Just everything is wrong. V- Vince Vaughn. Just, uh, f*** Vince Vaughn. I, I don't know what else to say, really. Just, And I don't really want to sh on him too much because I've actually been enjoying him in True Detective Season 2. But this is late 90s Vince Vaughn. So fuck Vince Vaughn. This, this movie stinks and I'll never watch it ever, ever again. I saw it back around when it first came out, and that was it. That was enough for me. Just if if people are talking about Psycho 4 being an unnecessary Psycho film, if you want to talk unnecessary, it's the Psycho remake. Like, not, ah,
1: just I can't, I
0: can't talk about it without getting pissed off. Screw that movie.
1: Okay, this is the way I look at it. It was made on a $60 million budget, and it only made $37.1 million. The way I put it a couple of years ago was it made $37 million more than it deserved to. Because there's no reason at all for this movie to exist. Thankfully, it was both a critical and financial bomb. It looked like the Psycho franchise, if you will, was dead at this point. But then somebody got the bright idea for A&E, the TV channel, to redo Bates Motel. Now, not like they did it in 87. This time, it's bizarrely, and this is their words, a contemporary prequel to the original film. It takes place in 2012, or the first season did. It takes place now, but... It's all of the events that lead up to the original 1960 film. So now you've yeah. got Norman Bates with iPods and whatnot, yet he's still going to become the same Norman Bates from Hitchcock's movie. Oh, screw you! I mean it's <laughs> I watched the pilot and it was I didn't like the pilot. The, the The series is getting gets terrific reviews, great ratings. It's on his third season. I just can't accept it just on its presence. the the premise alone, I can't accept of Bates Motel. It just is too stupid. This is just like the remake, completely unnecessary. If you're going to make a prequel, it's got to be set in the 50s.
0: Well, just being a a fan of the whole Psycho legacy, I gave it a shot. Uh, I watched about half of of season one, and just I couldn't continue. I hate the way, whether whether it takes place in the 50s or or modern era or not, uh, it's taking place in the modern era, but I think given the character the the way you work the characters you could still do it well and i just i don't like the way norman is depicted they're they're really trying to make him creepy in it like he's got this this sort of wormy snaky vibe about him like just the way he's looking and the way his eyes are and it's like why he's got a serial
1: killer vibe perkins didn't have
0: that Right. He didn't. He absolutely didn't. It took him a while to to eventually finally kill somebody. But in this show, you've got him, like, killing hookers, and he's all Even creepy about that. didn't have that. Yeah, it's just really stupid, just the way they're doing it. Like, like they're trying to make it seem like, oh, it's going to be such a surprise when, when you find out that he's serial killer. No, we know what, it's, it's as unnecessary as the fucking Star Wars prequels. The Bates Motel is is easily one of the worst e- examples of it. Just the way they're depicting Bates, the giving him this whole creepy factor thing, and he's kind of already a serial killer. It's it's really uh, Psycho Four did it really well. This this one is you know what I'm just gonna say this Bates Motel is a prequel to the to the Gus Van Sant Psycho because that's all it deserves to be a prequel to, to that show. No, as soon as
2: I heard about it I just said, "Okay, I'm going to avoid this like the plague. There's really just no reason for this."
1: To wrap up, what do you guys think about the psycho legacy? The legacy of the films, the good films, the, you know, the bad films, the all the different TV work, the novels, Hitchcock's legacy. How do you wrap up the psycho legacy if you were going to try and somebody who's never seen anything to do with this? How would you give them the psycho legacy?
2: Well, I would say, you know, they need to check it out. I mean it's Psycho is an American classic, no doubt about it. And it just, you know, needs to be seen. Whether you're a fan of Hitchcock or of Suspense movies or of slashers, whatever it is, you need to go in and check this out. And it's nice that it kind of is working with, you know, previous things, working with Block's novel, which is kind of an interpretation of the game story and all this kind of stuff. And you get to see it you know, relived in a few other films as we go along. There have been other movies that have tried to tell the same Gene story, but in much different ways. And I think that Psycho is the classiest of these. Yeah. And there, as far there, as there's
1: no doubt about that, no one would ever <laughs> call Texas Chainsaw Massacre classy.
2: Or what was that <laughs> one? Uh, demented i think it was called and
1: yeah that was yeah. demented and then steve ralsback had an, an actual ed Gein movie right. 10 years or so ago that wasn't very hot had one too yeah and Kane hotter and yeah the, <laughs> there's there's no doubt about it hitchcock did it the best yeah well, and
2: i want to say that uh, william castle did homicide which kind of pulls from some same things too so i'll be watching that pretty soon and we'll give you guys a report but as far as you know Psycho is a classic, no doubt about it. I hope I don't hear any dissent from the audience kind of thing. But Psycho 2 and 3 and 4, surprisingly good, surprisingly solid films that, like I said kind of before, have no right to be as good as they are and really (laughs) should be checked out.
0: It's timeless. And it's so ahead of its time. And without it, we wouldn't have, in my opinion, we wouldn't have stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We, we wouldn't even have Friday the 13th. We wouldn't have Silence of the Lambs. This was uh, an idea taken from a real life serial killer, becomes a book, becomes a movie, is so well received, in my opinion, spawns a subgenre, spawns the slasher stuff. Do you, do you really think that Jason would be keeping his mother's severed head in a shack and, like, hearing her voice if it wasn't for Psycho? Do you think Buffalo Bill would have all these, like, Ed Gein uh, kind of throwbacks and stuff if, if uh, the idea for Ed Gein wasn't used in stuff like Psycho? Absolutely not. I, I think that uh, movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre with all the, you know, uh, furniture made of bones and human flesh and the, the, the rotting corpse of Grandpa— wouldn't be utilized from the whole Ed Gein uh, murders and, and uh, the, the real life Ed Gein stuff if Psycho hadn't have become a thing, hadn't have been if, if the the writer and if uh, Hitchcock hadn't been brave enough to incorporate this into a time in 1960 where nobody was expecting to see anything like that. If there wasn't that bravery to do it then we wouldn't see the subgenre of the slasher film the way it became in the in the early 70s and spanning and into the 80s and even to this day. I think that it was a total game changer and if if, if you're listening and if you haven't seen psycho uh, or psycho two three or four, do yourself a favor get get your get your hands on them and watch them you you're gonna be thanking yourself for, for finally sitting down and watching what in my opinion completely spawned the genre
1: it's probably the most solid slasher movie franchise that there has been. Mm-hmm. It's the only one, and I'm, only, I'm counting the original four films here, that didn't have a dud in it. All the other Agreed. ones, as much as we might like some of the other franchises, they all have at least one dud. This is the only one that has four solid movies in it. We all have a different opinion on what the best one is, but we all agree, I think, they're all good movies. Mike, if people want to get a hold of you and Mother... Where would they do so?
2: Well, Mother's in the basement, and she's doing very well. You don't
1: even give her a window seat? Come on!
2: No, no. (laughs) Well, when there are guests in Cabin 12, I generally hide her away. But uh, for the most part, yeah, she's there, and I'm over at projection-boot.com, where you can find new episodes every week talking about movies not as good as Psycho, but sometimes they're on par with it.
1: Peter, where can we see you getting your throat slit while sitting on the toilet like in Psycho 3? (laughs) Seriously, I think uh, that's the only even close to actual slasher movie trope that they used in the whole franchise, was the woman sitting on the toilet getting her throat slit.
0: (laughs) At least I I get to be a a hot chick that gets her throat slit. You, You can find me, if you give me fair warning so I can hide Mother in the fruit cellar, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zinematica, on Facebook, The Cinemasticist, on YouTube, The Cinemasticist, and you can find me on 1201beyond.com, shouting mother with a fury.
1: A boy's best friend is his mother, and your best <laughs> friend is 1201beyond.com, where you can buy t-shirts, and you can use the Adam and Eve code, and you can use Amazon links and whatnot. So go to 1201beyond.com. If you want to contact the show, you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Remember guys be nice to your mother or she will get you for this.
2: I love to meet, I'll turn the street, the